So we are getting ready to do our second installment of the science, the religion and science do we podcast. Have a, do we have a name for our podcast yet? I think it's the religion and science podcast. I'm not saying that I'm good at naming podcasts. I'm just saying that's what I came up with. That's our pro tem name. Is what you're saying? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I'm saying. All right, that's well, our I'll come name. up. I'll have a name for us by the time we meet next time. Sounds good. So, um, just to reintroduce ourselves, uh, I'm the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Concord, California. My name is Johanna Wagner, and I will let my husband introduce himself. I'm Michael Coyle, and I'm formally trained as a scientist with a PhD in exercise physiology. Yeah, and that actually that brings up something we didn't totally clarify during our first our first podcast, and that is that part of the reason why we're doing this is because we're people whose educational uh, I guess you could say journeys, if you will, have taken us in very different directions. I mean, and the, it, it ended in terminal degrees. It just, <laughs> it, 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 it's, but it's also 180 degrees. <laughs> right, exactly. I was a Latin major as an undergraduate. I have a master's degree in medieval studies. Uh, then I've got my divinity degree, and then I, I topped it all off with a degree from Duke Divinity in, in Christian leadership. And my reputation precedes itself, so I need no introduction. <laughs> well, basically... I'll fill you in on his background. He was a bio major in college. And then what was your master's degree in again? Motor control. So neuromuscular control of movement. Okay. And then your PhD was in cardiopulmonary physiology. Yeah. Exercise physiology, with, but uh, you can either be a skeletal muscle person or a cardiopulmonary. And mine was called cardiopulmonary. Okay. So as you can see, we have really different backgrounds, really different educational backgrounds. And um, so... The idea behind this podcast was that we would take turns sort of exploring one another's areas of expertise in the hopes that that might be interesting for uh, for other people. For example, for the non-scientists, they might also be interested, like myself as a non-scientist, in some of the ways that scientists explain or study or understand the world, and vice versa. Somebody who's coming from a science background might be interested in learning more about how somebody from a religious background like myself explains, describes, understands the world. And for me, it, it really starts with why anyone would read Jane Eyre. I mean, I... I it would, He's saying would, that would because drives, I really like Jane Eyre. That, that's exactly it. So I call it Jane Error. And if I really, <laughs> if I feel like getting my exercise in, my cardio, I, I duck as soon as I say that. But the, the reality of it is, is that, you know, we each have... You know, expertise in different areas, and, and fundamentally, we each find the other's area of expertise, you know, interesting for different reasons. Yeah. And and so it it came up on the patio one night. Wouldn't it be cool if? And then it turned into this podcast. So yeah. hopefully, yeah. you share our our opinion of that. So at any rate, so that's kind of um, again just a little sense of where we're coming from. Since our first podcast was on Psalms one and two, otherwise, you know, as as on religion, uh, we decided that the second podcast, in the spirit of alternating podcast religion and science, would be about a science topic. Um, Michael suggested the Psalms one and two topic, and so I am suggesting the topic for science. And a little background on what I'm interested in: uh, I'm going to describe what I know about this topic as a person whose background is in the classics. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of turn the, um, turn the microphone, if you will, over to Michael, who's going to then talk about how this topic is understood by someone such as himself, a modern scientist. So at any rate, the, the topic is, um, and you'll have to forgive me over the course of this 
uh, this podcast. I'm going to be tongue-tied at times because I really don't have the vocabulary for this. But Aristotle's way of understanding the different sort of orders of being, if you will, um, was to say, for example, that um, rocks possess what might be described as the principle of substance. So a rock has substance. What differentiates a plant from a rock is that a plant has both substance and then also it has growth, the principle of growth. It can grow. It can change its sort of dimensions. The way he would describe the difference between an animal and a plant and rock, would he, he would say an animal has substance and it has this principle of growth, but it also has the principle of, mo of mobility. It's able to move itself around in a way that plant is not. And then Aristotle would go on to say, and the difference between human beings and animals and plants and rocks would be, to, what he would say is that human beings possess substance like a rock. They, presents, they, they, um, they possess the principle of growth like a plant. They possess the principle of mobility in addition to growth and substance like an animal, but they also um, possess the principle of rationality. And so that's a, sort of a classical way of understanding why and how these different types of things, if you will, are, are differ from one another. And what I'm really interested in is how would a modern-day physiologist describe the difference between, for example, or what goes into making a rock different, for example, from a plant, a plant different from an animal, and on and on and on. And so that's my question. My question is basically... How do you get from rock to plant to to animal to human being? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you had mentioned that you might be, you know, tongue-tied at times because you don't have a basic, you know, understanding of some of these principles, and I would argue that you do. Uh, and I'm going to give uh, some credit to the person who trained me as a graduate student. His name is Joel Steger. And uh, Dr. Steger, uh, we, we'd have uh, seminars and lab meetings once a week, and and it was not uncommon for him to bring in someone from a different discipline, a different department. Um, you know, I remember one seminar specifically, he said, do you know where your degree comes from? You know, do you know why we call it doctor of philosophy? And he talked about the idea of, of knowing uh, an area very, very, very well, becoming an expert, but being well-versed in all others. So he'd bring in an English professor, he'd bring in a philosophy professor, economics professor, and of course we weren't expected to be experts across the board, but it was his way of exposing us to all of these different uh, areas of, of study. And it wouldn't be unlike him to pose the exact set of the question or sets of questions that you asked us. And not necessarily that there's a right or wrong answer, but, and it didn't really matter to him in the moment. Ultimately, it did. But it was, you know, with, uh, you know, no slight to Aristotle, but it was a Socratic method. And, you know, he would ask these questions and he wanted to see what we thought in the moment, not necessarily what was the right answer, but what do you think? And then we'd get to, you know, a reasonable answer. So the question before me is, what is the difference between a rock, a plant, and an animal? Is that Well, it's, it's basically, how would a physiologist, how would a modern scientist describe the difference or what it is that allows this difference to occur, that you go from, from just something that is stuff? Sentience to non-sentience? Well, yeah, like 
how do you, what is, how, how is it that? Well, I mean, well, okay, I, I see where this is going. So rock is mass. Right. It's, right. Just, it's straight up mass. Right. And weight is how you have a relationship with the earth in terms of gravity. Right. So when I say that I weigh, you know, uh, 100 pounds, you know, that's really, you know, uh, mass of, I don't weigh 100 pounds. Okay, I was yeah. going to say, I'm, I'm smiling just, I'm as the, Well, because, you know, it makes it a nice round number. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, but that's not my mass. That is my mass times gravity, their acceleration of gravity, and that gives me weight. But in a rock, you think of, you know, it has weight, but essentially it's, it's mass. Yeah. It's matter. Yeah. And it can be organic matter or inorganic matter. But okay. essentially, it is, you put a rock down, it's going to stay where it is. Right. Unless something movements. I mean, moves right. it. Like Newton exactly. told us that, you know, we'll stay in place unless a, you know, a, a, an outside force acts on it. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what that, yeah. yeah. I mean, in some ways, I guess you could say almost my question is, where does motion come from? Like physiologically, what is it that, what is it that a rock lacks compared to, you know, well, think about a it like this. An think about it like this. If you have uh, what we, you're walking down the beach and you find, you know, a smooth piece of sandstone, just a piece of rock, and you put that rock, uh, you bring it home, and you put it in the middle of the table. You take a, uh, you've got, you know, ambient light, you've got lights on, and you take a lighter and you flick the flame and you put it next to the rock. The rock's not going to move. Right. If you took baking soda. And dropped it with, you know, mixed it with water and dropped it on the rock, the rock's not going to move. Right. If you took a really bright pen light and shined it on the rock, the rock's not going to move. Right. It's literally just mass. Yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a lump of different uh, molecules and atoms, but it's mass. So, you know, movement, we think we call it taxis, T A X I S, taxis. It's not, you know, a coincidence that when you hail a cab, you're hailing a taxi, you're moving yeah. from point A to point B. Maybe, you know, it's Uber now. but So the difference between uh, an object or, or uh, an entity that is literally still unless wind or water erodes it, um, you know, changes it in some way, moves it, displaces it, it's not going to move on its own. Right. If you think about the most simple, you went, well, so let's go with plants. Plants aren't the most simple uh, form of, of life. I mean, they're very complex. But think about... Think about uh, a plant that you might have hanging in your window. Mm -hmm. The portion of the plant that's closest to the window, let's say it's a plant that you know, likes to have a lot of light, the majority of the plant will actually start to grow in the direction of the light. Right. Phototaxis moves because of light. Because of light, okay. If you think about... But how does it... But what does it have in it? And again, I know that I'm speaking about this like in this totally basic... Well, it, but what it, does it have in it so that it can, it can make that move? Well, it's, it's in, in that case, well, there's, uh, I don't know how to answer the question without getting very, getting a very complicated answer, but I, I'll, I'll do my best to describe. So a plant is a living metabolic thing. Yeah. And the, and energy from the sun is very important for the way it makes its energy, which is called photosynthesis. Right. So the more of the, you know, green plants that are facing the sun means that it can generate more energy. And ultimately that energy is to... Uh, bring up water, you know, create, you know, sugar from photosynthesis 
and to create flowers for reproduction. Right. Just like us. But we do it a little differently. Right. But it's, but it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. same thing, yeah. right? Same things are in play. Yeah. So um, they're, they're, you know, plants don't, won't walk across a table. They'll right. grow towards light. They'll grow away from light. If, um, you know, there's something called chemotaxis, so that responds to, you know, chemistry. So in the case of a plant, it might be the pH of the soil. In other words, how acidic or how basic the soil would be. Sometimes the plant won't grow. Sometimes the, where the, the seed is put in the dirt, you know, it'll, what's called germination, that sprout pops up through the soil. And instead of growing straight up, it, you know, grows horizontal and then up, um, you know, just, it just depends on a lot of different factors. It's responding to its but environment. But it's responding to the environment. That's exactly right. But my question is, what is it inside of it that allows it to respond? Well, it's a, like I understand, I totally understand what you're saying that it's responding to its environment as a way of surviving. It's a, yeah, it's a know? multicellular organism, and so each okay. cell that reproduces goes in the direction that's favorable, and and, and that's the most simplistic uh, description I can offer. But it grows in the direction where the energy is that it needs to live, and that's a bit of a teleological approach. Yeah. What that teleology is is like, um, you know, it it does it. This way, uh, see how do I want to describe teleology? So my question, so I understand what you mean when you say something like a teleological explanation. What you're basically saying is that, you know, the the end point is what determines the way you the explanation. define the explanation. Ex right, right. It's like, so I, I understand that. So, but I, I want to go back to something that you you just mentioned. So you basically said that this principle of growth. Um, you know, this taxis um, in plants is because there are different cells. So are there not different cells in a rock? Do a rock, rocks not have A rock is cells? made up of molecules and elements and atoms. And those aren't cells. Those are not cells. Oh. A cell is defined as a, as a very, is, is like a, um, it is a unit with organelles and a nucleus. Okay. And that cell can reproduce, it can pass its genetic information onto uh, cells when it divides. Okay. Okay. So this is huge. See, I did not realize that. So yeah, cells, so, rocks, yeah, don't, rocks get don't have cells. Okay, right. Right. So, you put two rocks okay. together. They're two rocks put together. You, you know, <laughs> you it. put the right two well, dogs together, you get puppies. Okay. So tell me, <laughs> right. Okay. I get that. I get that. Okay. So if plants have different kinds of cells, what are some of the different kinds of cells that a plant would have? And then I, and then I want to know, is an is an animal different from a plant because it has different cells from a plant? Like the cells, the plant cells plus additional cells. Well, the plant cells and animal cells uh, are different and similar. Okay. I think in order to explain how they're different requires some biochemistry that I think might go. That would probably I think a little be bit too a little deep. Bit more than but I can like handle. for example, uh, cells have a wall. Okay. Plant cell walls are different than animal cell walls. Are they are they squares? They can be squarish. I just had like I had this distant memory sort of bubbles. I mean, they, the they can be. It's, it's a more rigid, significant wall. It can be. Okay, yeah. so I feel like at some point in my yeah. educational career, yeah, many the, many the years ago, the other point, ago, the other at. part of a cell is that it can reproduce, and the way cells reproduce in a plant are are different than animals. I mean, plants take in CO two and produce O two in general. Mm -hmm. 
Animals take in O2, oxygen, and produce carbon dioxide, CO2. Okay. So they're, they appear to be, you know, very different in that way. Yeah. Um, there are some similarities, you know, photosynthesis is similar to some of the metabolic, uh, uh, part of the metabolic engine that goes on in animal cells. And again, the difference is, is, is more for a collegiate level, you know, chemistry course, but okay. they're, they're similar in that, that they have engines to produce energy. It just turns out that plants take in carbon dioxide and, and, uh, as a, as part of their byproduct oxygen. release oxygen. And animals do the opposite. So, okay. So, um, and if there's any plant physiologists out there right now, or if the professor that I had in 1990 is listening, uh, I, I probably could have done a better job, but yeah. I've, that, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm still struck by the whole, <laughs> the whole rocks don't have cells because that <laughs> totally blows my mind. I'm not sure why I thought that they had cells. And I probably owe an apology to many science teachers who who would probably. Where's said Neil this. deGrasse Tyson when you need him? <laughs> exactly, no kidding. But so, so getting back, so that makes sense to me in terms of the difference between you know between rocks and plants. Now I want to get at the difference between plants and animals because I understand what you're you're talking about the way that a plant will grow towards us, you know, a source of light, for example, mm. and grow away from. Environmental conditions that are toxic. I totally get that. But it still strikes me that there's something different about how animals move from the way that plants move and the way that animals respond to their environment from the way. So how is it, how, how did they develop these more complex ways of responding to the environment than a plant? What do they have that plants don't have? I guess is what I'm saying. Well, this is this is a very um, sort of large order question, but I, what I think you're asking is where we want to start talking about the concept of neural tissue okay. and the development of a brain and a portion of the brain respond dedicated to movement. You know, plants okay. don't move. Your your tree, right. your apple tree is not going to be in your neighbor's yard tomorrow unless lightning hits it, <laughs> right. but it will grow. Its its cells right. will you know, replicate and reproduce. Right. But its roots aren't going to, you know, creep over into someone that's, else's yard if, if someone's dog takes a leak on it. I mean, right, that's not going right, to happen. Right. An animal actually has locomotion. That's what I'm saying. So Yeah, what and is locomotion it requires coordination. It requires yeah. muscular movement. It requires neural intervention or uh, innervation, rather, pardon me. And that is controlled by and large by neural tissue, whether it's a blob What's a, what you well, mean you a know, blob? like a, some animal, like an earthworm. Oh, you mean like an animal yeah. that's a blob? No, I, I shouldn't have said it that way. What I mean is, is that neural tissue can be uh, diffuse and unorganized, but it's it's more than just one neural cell, like an earthworm. Okay. Or it can be like you know our brain or a dolphin's brain or or you know an animal that that exhibits a great amount of coordination. Okay. So neural tissue. Um, so is this the kind of stuff that's... Well, that's, that's the development. So, you know, that, that's getting at the, at the question of, well, how does, how does an animal move away from things that, yeah. are, that are not uh, particularly favorable in the environment? And we see it with one-celled animals where, okay. you know, they have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if there's a noisome chemical, if the, like, again, the pH, if the acidity or basic of the the medium like liquid medium that it's in changes and it's not favorable to them and that means certain enzymes in their body don't work as well so they can't metabolize food they go the other way okay. they move away from it they move away from same it. same thing with light and same it's thing. because they have neural tissue 
Well, yeah, they can respond. They can absolutely respond to their environment. I mean, there, there is a mechanism in place where it is receiving information from the environment. It is being processed in some way. And then there is movement away or towards, depending on if it's favorable. What is an example of neural tissue? Yeah, what I'm referring to is a brain, some kind of concept of a brain. And okay. we, we think of a brain as this, you know, and I think, I think what most people would think is, is, you know, a human brain is very convoluted, uh, a lot of surface area. It's in, in two hemispheres. In other words, it's, it sort of seems to be split into left and right. There's a bunch of neural t- specialized neural tissue that connects the two. When I think of, when I talk about responding to stimuli, I'm talking about a paramecium. Okay. I'm talking about a, a single cell, you know, okay. uh, you know, uh, animal that has a flagellum or or, or a tail. Mm-hmm. When you think about a like a see-through tadpole that's like micrometers okay. thick. Yeah. And you shine light in where they're swimming around, and they'll scatter. Okay. Or if you you know change its pH, if you like, as I, as I keep saying, changing whether or not they're what they're swimming around in is more acidic or more basic. Uh, it will change, and they do that because we all have enzymes, and enzymes are or animals have enzymes that uh, facilitate chemical reactions. It reduces the amount of energy it takes for that chemical reaction to happen. Okay. So this is going to be, again, I just feel like I keep apologizing for these dumb questions. I feel like, you know how teachers are always saying, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I feel like I'm challenging that assumption (laughs) in this conversation. At any rate, the question that I have is, so these little single cell organisms, they don't have brains, but they have neural tissue. We wouldn't classify it as a brain, but they have something. But that they is have brain-like. there is there is tissue that is what we would consider neural in nature. Okay, that is able to respond to environmental conditions, Got and it. It, at, at the most basic level, it is light. It is the chemistry of the medium. In most cases, it's you know a water or liquid environment that it finds itself in. That's the most okay. basics. When you do your very first experiments. In chemistry and biology, mm-hmm. you're working with amoebas and paramecium, and and uh, and these are these are all just you know single cell organisms. But you you work with them because if you if you understand how a single cell operates, a single living yeah. cell operates, then you can start stacking those principles together. Got it. So that we can start then talking about very complex organisms like animals. Okay, that makes sense to me. Um, now here's sort of my next question is sort of um, because plants are also like you, when you were talking about plants, you were talking about how they move for, you know, towards light or they, so do they have neural tissue as well? I wouldn't classify it as neural tissue. I mean, you've got, um, you know, the, the whole, uh, phylum arrangement, you've got, you know, animals, phylum you know, plants, you know, fungi. Yeah. Does yeah, that sound familiar? Yeah, yes, okay. So yes, that's ringing those, some bells. right. Yeah. Okay. So those, uh, the, those, those categories are there for a number of different reasons, okay. but, um, one of them is, you know, presence or absence of certain characteristics. Got it. Um, a plant does not have neural tissue. Okay. Okay. But it can respond to stimuli. Right. Got it. But it does that in another way. Right. Okay. It does that through another mechanism. Right. Okay. All right. So now we're on to the, we're on to the difference between animals and human beings, which, let me just say, I recognize is a highly contested sort of question 
I know what you mean, though. I mean, I know what you're saying, though. But I, mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is we have a dog lying between us right now on the floor. And, um, you know, I am a dog lover. And I certainly am not one of those people who don't think that dogs have, you know, souls or brains or, you know, a species of rationality and all these kinds of things. I think that they absolutely do that. I think they have memory, you know, et cetera. So maybe dogs and dolphins get to be in the human category here right now. <laughs> but, but I think before when I was talking about Aristotle, his big thing was, you know, you've got the principle of substance, you've mm-hmm. got the principle of growth, you've got the mm-hmm. principle of mobility, but then you've also got the principle of rationality. That, that's how he explained the difference. Mm-hmm. But how do modern-day physiologists explain the difference between human beings and other animals? Well, it's complicated. There's an entire field dedicated to that. It's called comparative anatomy and physiology. And you can look at literally anatomical differences versus functional differences. And I'll I'll give you examples of both. So if you take, for example, um, uh, our dog, Ozzy, right? Our our yellow lab and us. He walks on four legs. We walk on two. Yeah. So that means that, and he has a diaphragm and he has lungs and he has a rib cage, just like we do. Right. But his diaphragm is in the exact opposite direct, lies in the exact opposite direction than ours does. So that's an anatomical difference, but we still have the same functionality. And that is to bring air from the environment or the atmosphere or as commonly air as we think about. Uh, and dogs, animals do the same thing because ultimately we need oxygen to survive. Right. So that's anatomical differences as an example. Functional differences become, there are portions of the brain that we share with animals. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we've had offline conversations about the oldest parts of the brain. Right. And that's typically smell. Um, the amygdala, you, you may have heard that term before, and that's you know what, what most people think of. It's more complicated than this, but it's the fight or flight response. Right. Or if you... Uh, you know, walk in and smell a certain smell, you immediately think of grandma's cookies. You know, and that, is that yeah. what people describe as the reptile part uh, of the brain? That, right. And what they're referring to is that it's one of the most ancient parts of the brain. So all okay. animals share that. Okay. Where it becomes different is we can look at their cranial volume, and we call that brain pan. That's, that's typically that's the, brain the term, pan. the brain pan. So when you hear people talking about brain pan, what they're really talking about is the volume of the brain. Okay. So if you look at Ozzy, our yellow labs, volume, yeah. uh, it's much less than ours. Okay. So can he use tools? Well, yeah, he uses a stick to, you know, dig stuff up to get the next stick. I mean, sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even you know, sure that he does that, actually. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have exquisite tools. I mean, they're... Lasers. What's that? I said we have lasers. We have lasers, exactly. Dr. Evil has lasers. So we have the ability to do complex cognition. Dogs do too. Dogs have a certain emotional intelligence. You know, like when you're sick, for example, Ozzy comes around and lies near you. I mean, it's not to say that they have this, uh, you know, dogs have a brain that is um, not advanced. It's just different. You know, there, there is compassion. You know, for example, there's a, I don't know if it was the Atlantic, uh, New Yorker, uh, along those lines. Yeah. There was an article about, there were three uh, middle-aged guys, and they were out in, I'll just say it's, it's somewhere in the, I don't know, South Atlantic, you mm-hmm. know, are there dolphins there? 
I don't know. So okay. They were someplace where there were dolphins. Yeah, How and I'm, just I'm pretty that? sure that's where it was. But if not, uh, insert the correct geography there. But the, the, and that's not important. The important thing is, is there were dolphins. Yeah, and dolphins, you know, swim around in the pod, and they use sonar to get around, much like bats. So that you've got this common sort of, you know, uh, functionality to navigate the environment. Yeah. And they would come up every day, and they would play, and they mm-hmm. would be inquisitive, and they they had this play behavior that, that the mm-hmm. article read, what the person yeah. who was writing about the, the story. And they would go up, and they would go under the boat, and they'd go around the boat, and they were clearly playing with each other and come around, and I think there were three or four. I think, I think it was three. And one day, and they would take a nap every day. And mm-hmm. on the day that, on this particular day, one of the guys took a nap, and he had a heart attack in his sleep, and he died. Oh, my gosh. The dolphins came up to a certain point and they stopped and they just kind of stayed stationary. And what animal behaviorists will, will say is that dolphins have this sense of mourning for death. Oh, that's fascinating. And so they were actually, I mean, if, if, if what we know is true, and, and dolphins are some of the most advanced animals on the planet, you know, next to us and believe it or not, pigs and, and other mm-hmm. animals. They have the sense, they've developed the sense, elephants too, by the way. Mm-hmm. They've developed a sense of compassion where they didn't, you know, and, and there's a little bit of anthropomorphizing, right? So it's right, taking, right. you know, our emotion and projecting it onto an animal is what that is. But there was a bit of that, but th- this behavior is consistent. So they believe that this is not, you know, an anthropomorphic. Fism, sorry, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, uh, anthrop- I don't think it's total projection. No, it's not, pro- very, okay, they, yeah, it's not projection. And then after a certain time, they came around the boat again. Okay. But there was, a, there was a period of what, what, what people determined was mourning. Elephants do this too. The, the, the matriarch will lead the mourning process, and the, and the less mature uh, females do the same thing. The bulls will mourn yeah. the loss of you know, the matriarch. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, and they, they communicate on frequencies that we can't hear. Interesting. So they were communicating with each other, these, these dolphins, to go back to the story, they were communicating with each other, but also communicating across species to the, to the humans. Like they were, they, were, they were sensing their mourning as yeah. well. So it was yeah. collective mourning. So that's, you know, that, it, it's, it's remarkable the more we learn about functionality of brains. And it's typically tied to, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, the volume of the, of the brain or the brain case. Okay. And so humans have a very large volume relative to their, to their, their bodies. bodies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we respond to light, we respond to heat, we respond to our environment. We can communicate, we can speak. And there's a lot of articles on rats and we don't we typically think of rats as fun little creatures, but there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of literature and studies done on them. And when rats play, they emit a high frequency noise. Hmm. That is specific to play behavior. Oh, okay. And when they hurt or they're doing something else or they're hunting for food or looking around for food, they don't emit that. It's specifically for play behavior. Oh, that's fascinating. And we can't hear it. So even yeah. though we think about a rat as more rudimentary brain, they still communicate. Yeah. So yeah. it's really one of those, it's a, it's a functional component of how do I exist in a community? That's yeah. the one thing that most animals have in common is they, they, they exist some in some kind of Yeah, skills. and you can always think of an example of an animal that's more you know, solitary, like a wolf, for example. But there's you know, wolf packs, but yeah. still. Yeah, um, yeah so it's, uh, it's really interesting to think about how all these things come down to one common denominator, which is the size, the volume is a better term, the volume of a brain. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, this has been super. No, I don't know if I'm right, but I'm. That's but what I understand. But you're, yeah. 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 I just play a scientist on TV. I there mean, you go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And around the house at times. Right. Yeah. But no, this has been a really interesting conversation because I, at the beginning of this conversation, I could, I literally had no idea how these things got explained. Um, and I think what's very interesting about, especially this last part where you've been talking about the sort of commonalities between animals. So, you know, yes, we have a, a larger brain per our size. And yes, we have maybe more complex brain than other species. We share a lot with them. I mean, one of the things about Aristotle, and I didn't bring this up when I was first talking about him, but part of his way of seeing human beings as different, you know, by, as possessing rationality, he didn't even extend that to all human beings. So he thought men possessed rationality, but women, children, and slaves did not. So I think one of the things... There's a social component to his... Absolutely. Yeah. There are implications well, for human it, well, rights. You know, it could have. You know, he might not have been wrong. And hear me out. I mean, what? all of a sudden, Johanna's flexing on me. What I'm saying is, but but the the group of people he's referring to did not have access to education. I'm saying they weren't given the opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm. I don't think Aristotle thought it was a problem of opportunity. I thought he was a pro, he he considered oh. a problem of capacity. Yeah. I'd, I'd, okay. I'd thumb wrestle him on that one. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. Yeah. No kidding. But what you've sort of rolled out, I think, is a very, um, a very beautiful way of understanding how we fit into creation, um, the commonalities that we share with the animal world, as opposed to, I think, the stance that we have at times taken. I'm thinking of someone like Descartes, for example, mm -hmm. and the, and the, mm -hmm. the kinds of um, experiments that he ran on animals. Um, Descartes, by the way, thought that animals were, were purely like machines. He didn't yeah, think no. that they really possessed feelings. Yeah. And so he did really terrible kinds of, kinds of experiments on them. I think what you're talking about are, are ways of conceptualizing the difference between human beings and animals that um, draws us closer to them as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, there's clearly anatomical differences. We don't have a tail. Right. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we've got a tailbone. You right. know, but we don't have a tail. You know, I mean, dogs have a tail, cats have a tail. Most animals that we think of have a tail. I'm trying to think of an animal that I now kangaroo. I know that that yeah. So anyway, but most animals Wait, have a don't tail. don't kangaroos have tails? That's what I'm saying. That okay. I, I I thought you know platypus. <laughs> Wait a minute, platypus tail? Maybe not ducks. No, I think they okay. have tails. Yeah, ducks. yeah, ducks have little tails. Well, feathers. Okay, but so not all animals. But we. But my point is, is that we share far more in common. Right. Right. In terms of our abilities to mourn, share compassion or have compassion, to live in communities, yeah. um, to avoid things that are hurtful in terms of chemical, light, um, danger. We all have the same fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. What separates us truly is the size of our brain relative to our body, okay. brain volume, brain pan. Well, this has been a, just a fascinating talk, and uh, I hope the people who listened to it found, found it as well. Um, it's just great to talk with you about this kind of stuff. Uh, 
And um, I may not have done the plant stuff justice. I, I am an animal physiologist. Well, I, I thought you remember. did a good job with the plant stuff. It was 1990. Stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so I all the plant physiologists good. out there are on the edge of your seat. As far as I'm seat. able to tell, with my yeah. limited with my yeah. limited experience but, in education. But overall, though, I think I think we we struck the chord in terms of you know how these things are different and uh, how they're how they're similar, the concepts, you know, comparatively. I find it fascinating. Obviously, yeah. I do because yeah. that's my field. Well, we want to thank people for tuning in, and um, our next podcast will be taking up um, another uh, topic from religion. And I think what we're going to do is we kind of like doing the first two chapters of the Book of Psalms, so we're going to do the first two or three chapters from Proverbs, and just kind of stick with the wisdom tradition as we're as we're exploring some uh, some topics related to science. And I think the topic related to science that I want to talk with after we do Proverbs, is um, has to do with things like astronomy and the universe, mm. So, which I know is a passion of my husband's. Yeah, so. no, okay, all right. I'm going to start reading up again on that. So are we ready to go to the call lines? <laughs> We're ready to go to the call lines. All right.